Good morning. I hope you had breakfast. How many of you did not have breakfast? Be honest. How many have you? Had? Oh, man. I feel bad. I'm the only thing standing between you and the grill off right now. <laughs> so, hope you can pay attention. It's going to be great. There's a lot of amazing food out there, and I'm just really uh, looking forward to it myself. I ate, ate a little extra breakfast this morning so that I wouldn't get distracted during my own sermon. I am really excited to be able to introduce this new theme this fall for our worship life together, Epic, the journey from insignificant to magnificent. And here's why. I'm convinced that God is at work in this world, doing things that can only be described by words like epic and magnificent. God is doing amazing things, and he's inviting you and me to engage in what he's doing. This has been one of the themes of Mountain View over the last, I don't know, 10 years, that we are seeking to be a people who walk into each and every situation as much as possible in our lives, and we say, Jesus, what are you doing here? What are you already doing, and how can I be a part of it? And if we believe that God is really at work, really doing amazing things, then we hopefully will want to get engaged in that. But there is, there's a bit of a problem. It's not necessarily that we doubt that God is capable of doing epic things or even that he's doing them. The problem is that if we're honest, we have a tendency to see these things as outside the realm of our personal space. We have a tendency to think that if God is doing something really amazing, that it must be happening over there. Or it must be happening, it's probably happening with those people who look a little more amazing than me or who act a little smarter or who are more beautiful than I am or whatever it is that is on our list of inadequacies. We have a tendency to think that God is, God is doing something, God is doing something outside the realm of our own personal space. And so today, I'd like us to begin a, a journey through this fall to begin to examine why this is. And I can think of no better way to begin and no better person than to use as an example than the Old Testament figure, Gideon. I always think of Gideon when I think of this theme. Now, if you'll recall with me, you may know Gideon's story. You may not. We're going to talk about a bit of it today. But Gideon was one of the judges of Israel during what I think of as a really odd time in Israel's history. It's kind of an in-between time. It's after the patriarchs. You know, we know the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the really amazing things that happen. And then there's the time of the Exodus, right? When Moses brings the people out of Egypt and there's the Red Sea and there's wandering in the wilderness and there's the Ten Commandments. All these things have already happened. So this is after that. But this is before the time of the kings. 
And we may be more aware of the history of King David, King Saul first, of course, and then King David and Solomon, and then the, all those kings and the, and the things that happened with the prophets and the kings during that. This is the in-between time, before the kings, but after the patriarchs and Moses and the, and the Exodus. Israel is still in their tribal period. So there's 12 tribes and they're in different regions throughout Palestine, the promised land. And they were struggling with their faithfulness to God. And they would obey God for a while. They would follow the teachings of Yahweh, their God. But then they'd fall away and they would go back into the worship of other gods. And so in the book of Judges, where our text is from this morning, there is this recurring phrase, <clears throat> and it's here in, in verse 1 of chapter 6. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is actually number five of seven times this exact phrase shows up in the book of Judges. Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It happens over and over and over in, in the book of Judges. It's like this cycle that they can't get out of. They, uh, God would raise up a leader and they would, they would come to their senses and, and they obey God's commands and then they would forget and they would fall away into disobedience. And such is the case in chapter 6 of Judges. So God gave them into the hands of the Midianites who then invaded and were, as it says in verse 5 in chapter 6, they were as thick as locusts. So if you were to stand up on a hill and you were to look out over the valley, you'd see the tents of the Midianites and it looked like locusts on a, a crop or in a, on a field. It's just, it would be thick. To the, to the Israelites, this was, this was a, an awful thing. It was ugly. It was frustrating to have that many Midianites in their promised land basically oppressing them. And Midian's method of oppression was to basically undo whatever Israel tried to do or to accomplish in terms of agriculture, or, or commerce. So they would, for instance, ruin Israelite, the Israelites' crops. They would plant their crops and they would start to grow and the Midianites would come in and just ruin them, burn them up or pluck them out. They would steal their livestock. Whatever it was that the Israelites were trying to do, the Midianites would come in and they would basically mess it up. They, had, they would undo anything they were trying to do. So in order to survive, they had to resort to the kinds of tricks we see Gideon performing in our text. He's threshing grain in a wine press. So you know how wine is, is pressed. What they do is they put all the grapes into a big um, container of some kind. We don't know exactly what this container looked like, but it's it's big enough to hold a lot of grapes, but it's small enough to be able to, you know, you get in there with your bare feet and you crush the grapes to make the juice. This is what they did. So he's in a wine press 
with grain, threshing grain. And it's really kind of sad because it's not a good way to get this job done. Now, I have never attempted to thresh wheat, so I got to tell you, I'm not speaking from a position of an authority here, but my understanding is that threshing involves beating the stalks of wheat in, so that the kernels will be released from the stalk. So I've seen videos of this where they're, they're hitting the stalks of, of wheat and it releases the kernels and it all kind of goes into this big dusty mess um, and then they would somehow sift away the chaff and get the kernels and they could use the wind for this if there was wind but picture doing this in a wine press and how inconvenient that would be not to mention messy i mean here he is in a cloud of wheat dust probably trying not to sneeze hiding from his enemies in an effort to 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 eke out a living to be able to get enough wheat to be able to live and he's minding his own business and he suddenly realizes he's not alone there's somebody out there sitting under a, an oak tree nearby so then what ensues is one of the most entertaining human angel interchanges in the Bible. Now, you know, there's, there's a few of these where angels and humans talk together. Can you think of the most famous one? Yeah, it's Mary. When the angel comes to Mary and says, um, do not fear. You know, it's often, it's interesting that angels usually say that first. Do not fear. Which indicates to me that angels probably look kind of scary. Um, that, you know, you... Um, George MacDonald says, and this is quoted by C.S. Lewis famously, that if we ever saw an angel, we'd be tempted to bow down and worship them. So they, they, look, they possibly look kind of scary. And so here is uh, Gideon, and he suddenly realizes he's not alone, and there's, there's someone under this tree. Now, picture Gideon, if you would. He's probably caked in wheat dust got it all over him, in his hair, in his beard, and he's hiding in this wine press, and he hears the angel's first words to him. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. <laughs> now, this is a little like, I mean, this is a little like picking up an infant, you know, a little baby. And you know what we do sometimes with little babies? Um, sometimes baby boys, we pick them up and we say, hey there, slugger, <laughs> you know, hey, doctor. I mean, it's, it's, it's cute and endearing, but it's a little silly because this is a baby who is, you know, nowhere near being a slugger or a doctor or anything like that. And Gideon's response to the angel who says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior, you know, and caked as he is in, in, in wheat dust, his response is a clear indication that he has no clue that the one speaking to him is an angel from God. My personal opinion is that he's hiding in the wine press and he doesn't even look. He doesn't even see the angel. 
He's hiding down on the bottom and he's not even, he's afraid to look. If, I think if he looked, he probably wouldn't say what he says next because his first words to an angel, he's talking to an angel, his first words are, but sir, <laughs> a word of advice. If you're ever addressed by an angel or a direct comment from God, which actually happens next in this story, don't answer with, but sir, <laughs> just a little advice. Gideon's objection here is, is basically theological. If God is really with us, he says, then why are bad things happening? Theologians have a fancy word for this question. Theodicy. Basically, if God is really with us, then why is there evil happening to us? It's the theodicy question. So, the text goes right on and says, God then turns to Gideon. So get ready, here's a direct address from God, and he answers him and says, go in this might of yours. So here's an, a second mention of might, mighty warrior, and then go in this might of yours. Basically, there it is again, slugger. <laughs> and, and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. I hereby commission you. And Gideon's still hiding in his wine press. God has now given him his marching orders. It's an imperative. This is something you must do. God is directly ordering Gideon to go. Go in this might of yours. A direct order. With a formal commission. So now he's an officer in God's army. Hiding in his wine press. Gideon still doesn't get it. There's, and this is more than a little odd, I think, but he answers again, even after direct order from God. But, sir, and this time his question is not theological. It's not a why question, but actually a practical question. How? And here he's got a point. We've got to give this to Gideon. Not only is his family weak, and in this culture, you've got to realize that if, if you have a, a weak family, you're already behind. Your family is very important in this culture. And how big your family, how powerful your family is, how rich, how well-positioned they are, all these things. Uh, if your family is weak, then it's not a good thing. So he, he's got a weak family, and he is the weakest, the least. He's like the runt of his family, he's saying. He's got a point. This is quite a case Gideon has built for why he's not the man for the job. But God's answer to him is the same point he made at the outset, basically the promise of his presence first thing that God says to Gideon is, the Lord is with you. And the answer to Gideon's second objection is, the Lord is with you. 
really, folks, this is the bottom line. God is basically saying, Gideon, you may be oppressed and overrun by the Midianites. You may be hiding and barely getting by, threshing grain in the most inconvenient and ineffective way imaginable. You may be the weakest, least, youngest in your sorry excuse for a family. All this may be true, and yet, and yet, you can be used in God's epic story of salvation for Israel because of the one fact that overrides all these and any other excuse that might come up, and that fact is that you are not doing this alone, Gideon. I will be with you, Gideon. And because of that, you will defeat your enemies. So you might imagine, after hearing this, Gideon would agree and say, okay, I get it, let's go. But no. (laughs) And, And this is why I wanted to start with Gideon today. Before we carry this theme chronologically through about other, 10 other Old Testament characters, and we're going to do that, we're going to go back to Adam next week, Genesis chapter 3. We're going to go through and talk about all these different people, the way God used them. Before we do that, I wanted to look at Gideon because of this. After hearing everything he has just heard from God, from God through an angel in this direct address, Gideon still hesitates. He asks for a sign. As if being addressed by an angel and then by God himself were not enough, he wants more proof. He reminds me of one of the classic lines from the 1998 film, Simon Birch. Simon Birch is a a little boy who's doesn't grow very big. He's kind of stunted in his growth and he has a really weird voice. And he's very smart, but he's a very strange little kid. And you wonder through the whole story. This is a story by John Irving in the book, uh, A Prayer for Owen Meany. It was made into a movie called Simon Birch. And it's a great movie. If you ever want to see a fantastic movie, Simon Birch, remember that B-I-R-C-H, Simon Birch. But he has a friend named Joe, his, his best buddy, and they're about the same age, and there's this interchange at one point, and Simon is telling him, you know, Joe, you gotta have faith, you gotta have faith, you gotta have faith, and Joe finally says, I have faith. I just need proof to back it up. <laughs> just think about that for a minute. So here's, here's Gideon. He's just heard from God. He's been addressed by an angel. He's been addressed by God himself. He's been given a commission. who says, go, I order you. You're an officer in God's, God's army. And he asks for a sign because <laughs> he wants proof. He's a walking contradiction. And the amazing thing is that if you know the rest of the story, God does use Gideon in phenomenal ways in the ensuing months and years. At one point, he literally routed an army of 120,000 with a force of only 300 men. 
can wrap your mind around that, this is what Gideon eventually did. That's not epic. I don't know what is. Gideon, though, in this moment is the epitome of someone who goes from insignificant to magnificence. And yet, after it's all over and the Midianites are overpowered and peace comes to the 12 tribes for a short time, Gideon's story then ends on a sad note with an apparent return to a form of idolatry, with the fashioning of an ephod made out of gold. And then he has a son, Abimelech, who tries to become king against God's wishes. Not a good idea. <laughs> so Gideon's story is a, actually it's a lot like ours, I think. Yours and mine. We're a mix of belief and unbelief. We doubt our own abilities. And even at times, we doubt God's presence with us. We might experience flashes of greatness, but most of the time, we feel rather inadequate. Here's what I want us to remember and be talking about and praying about this fall. It's actually people like Gideon, people like you and me, that God prefers to engage in his epic plan for the world. God prefers people who blow it. God prefers to use people who are weak. God prefers to use people who don't think they really have it all together. It's not the impressive, the smart, the articulate, the muscular, or the attractive, or the rich, or the powerful that God uses. It's the rest of us. And it has happened over and over and over again. Ordinary people doing extraordinary things in God's epic story. I thought you might want to know this because it's probably going to happen to you. Let's pray. Guide us, Holy Spirit, into your truth. Guide us into somehow believing that you could use the likes of me to do something epic. Lord, we look at our world and the challenges we face and it seems sometimes so <clears throat> unlikely that anything is really going to happen. Anything's going to change. It looks, sometimes, it looks impossible. But I thank you, Lord, that you are a God who loves to make the impossible possible. 
nothing is too wonderful for you. Nothing is impossible with you. Lord, I pray especially this morning for those in this room who are at a crossroads in their lives. They sense that something new is about to happen. I pray, Father, that you would be helping them to see their lives in this light. That though we feel insignificant and inadequate, that what you're going to do is something big and beautiful, magnificent through us. Lord, we bring our gifts to you this morning, our offerings, and we pray the same thing for these gifts that we pray for our own lives, that you would take what is small and make it much that you would multiply our offering, Lord, for your glory, whether it's our lives, our talent, or our treasure, and we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.